This album is dedicated to all brothers and sisters. My men and my women. And yo, it's time. Put our hands together. Hip hop, hip hop. This one talking about y'all is hip hop. The stories of hip hop, of rap music, are the stories of a million MCs who inside of them the words are coming, the words they need to make sense of the world around them. The words are witty and blunt, abstract and linear, sober and fucked up. And when we decode that torrent of words, by which I mean really listen to them with our minds and our hearts open, we can understand their world better, and ours too. It's the same world. This is Rhymes and Reasons. I'm Jesus Rosario. I'm a radio producer. I'm the senior producer of a show on NPR called Latino USA. It's a radio show and a podcast. I'm also the co-host and co-creator of a show called Serially Obsessed. That's another podcast. I also used to be a stand-up comic and still perform around town as a professional storyteller. Total classic by A Tribe Called Quest, featuring leaders of the new school. Scenario is one of those songs that when I hear the beginning of that song, when I hear those first few beats of that song, like no matter what I am doing, no matter where I am, everything stops. I have dated people where I've had to be like, no, you have to understand that you can't keep talking when that song starts. Like you have to stop and we have to acknowledge that it's happening. And I live in New York City, which is a place where you have access to an insane amount of things in New York. It's very lucky, right? And so there was a period of time where Q-Tip from Tribe was doing this residency at Ace Hotel. He would DJ every Saturday night at Ace Hotel in New York. And so I decided for my 30th birthday that I was gonna go to Ace Hotel and go to the night that he was DJing. And I brought this kind of motley crew of my friends. Some of them probably could not have known less about hip hop, but just friends of mine from different walks of life. And we went and Q-Tip said, you know, hey, if it's your birthday, come on over, tell me what you wanna hear. And so I go over to Q-Tip, like directly to Q-Tip, and I'm like, I wanna hear a scenario. Can I get a hit? So I give them my information. I say I want to hear scenario. I go back to the dance floor. I'm hanging out with my friends, having a good time. And maybe about 30 or 40 minutes later, they drop the beat on scenario. And the entire club, like, just completely stopped what they were doing. and was like, oh, like that exact reaction that you want. And it was like, so fun and so exciting because I love that song. And here's Q-Tip himself playing the song. And the whole audience I know is like 100% behind this choice. And he's like, this one's for Daisy. Happy birthday, Daisy. And I was like, yes. Like, this is one of the finest moments of my life. Later that night, I got into it with a bouncer. We hadn't gotten bottle service or anything, but we got there early and so we had a table and they had sold it to somebody for bottle service. And so this bouncer was trying to clear us out and I said, just one minute, I was just using my phone, using the flash out on my phone to make sure that nobody's keys or anything had kind of fallen out. And they tried to eject us. The, the bouncer immediately started acting like I was giving him such a problem. Like he grabbed me by the arm and I'm like, oh, like this, I'm so mad. And then I have a friend who bought bottle service, got us back at the table. So then the manager had to come stop this bouncer 
from kicking me out. He was like, no, 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 she's okay. Like this guy took care of it. And then all of a sudden we went from being ejected to like having bottles. So don't violate or you'll get violated. The hip hop sound is well agitated. We'll never waste no time on a played out ego. So here's Buster Rhymes with the scenario. Watch as I combine all the juice from the mind. Heal up, wheel up, bring it back, come rewind. Powerful impact, boom, from the cannon. So I grew up in Brooklyn in an area called East New York and like I was born in 1981 so like I was a kid all throughout the 80s and the early 90s so scenario captures the fun and the energy of that time you know people were talking about serious things but rap was still there was still like a fun lightness to it it was kind of that same playfulness that you had in the schoolyard of like I have got the best yo mama jokes right and like that evolved as people got older into like I've got the best rhymes I've got the best way to diss you through rhyme I've got the best wordplay. I'm making fun references that you and I, we all get. Like, ultimately, there's a camaraderie to it that I think was very special of that time. It feels like you could be in somebody's backyard and a bunch of people just start freestyling, but trying to make something together. Not necessarily battling, more like a cypher. You know, like, I hear that song and it sounds like a block party. Here we go, yo. Here we go, yo. So what, so what, so what's the scenario? Here we go, yo. Here we go, yo. So my dad was a drug dealer and a drug user. He was in and out of prison my entire life. But when he was not in prison, my dad was a big man. My dad's reputation preceded him. He was not a kingpin, but he was like the tough guy on a street level. I remember visiting him and my grandmother in the projects where they lived, which were just the projects that they lived in were just outside of the complex that I lived in. It was like really close, but almost like a different world. And I remember like walking into the building one day and some dudes that were hanging out outside smoking were like, yo, yo, that's his daughter. My dad had that kind of reputation or my mother even, even when she was angry at him would tell stories of how my father could get jumped by five guys and he would take them all down. So my dad was like this real tough guy and he had quite the reputation. And my mother was like a very cute, she was a B-girl. Like she always would tell me stories about how she was part of a group called the Universal Rockers. It's like competitive dance groups matching outfits. And that's what she did in like the late 70s and early 80s. She was just part of that time in New York City. And so they met somewhere around the way as young people do. And my mom was definitely drawn to my dad's swagger and his energy. But it also brought a lot of trouble around. My name is Rod Supreme and don't eat pork. I reside in Chilltown, but came from East New York. From a time of being broke to a life of luxury. Stay in the house so you won't see much of me. But when I'm out, I go to Brooklyn just to chill and max. And from my head to my toes, I wear all black. No, I'm not a criminal. Playing with my digital. Lay back in my chair while collecting my residuals. Cash that I made during winter, summer, fall, spring. We're getting this by fall. It's just a small thing. Remembering the time I was going to a talent show. I saw my ex-partner. My mom ended up getting shot when I was three months old. My dad had stolen some drugs and money from this guy that I think he was supposed to be working for, but he just took it. And they went looking for him. And when they couldn't find him, they saw my mom and they shot at her instead. And so my mother spent the whole first year of my life in the hospital learning how to walk again. I grew up in this in these apartment buildings that were like where kind of the most striving families of the neighborhood lived right like if you really looked around like everybody there was still poor or like seriously working class but they were not as poor as like the other buildings right around but like nobody there was doing like well 
really, really doing well. But so we lived at my grandparents when I was a little kid. And so just that was like the reality of being around that area. You know, I remember walking home from school when I'm like five years old and it's the 80s and there's cardboard boxes everywhere and kids are spinning on their heads and like doing different styles of breakdancing. I remember picking up the colorful crack vials on the walk home, seeing them everywhere, like always picking them up because they were colorful and looking at them. And I don't think I really completely even understood what they were until I saw the movie New York City. You know, like I didn't understand the context until I got a little older. I'm Puerto Rican, mostly. At least that's my understanding. There's a little bit of mystery in part of my family, as far as I know. I have a lot of questions that haven't been answered yet. And I grew up in a place that I would say was truly diverse. So there were lots of Latinos growing up, mostly Puerto Rican, but some others as well, like one of my best friends in elementary school was like Colombian and Honduran. And then there was also a lot of black people. And then there was also what we would call the ethnic whites. So you're Irish, you're Italian. We had a big influx of Russian immigrants come in. And it was normal to spend a lot of time outside to play your music, to play your music loud, to go to free concerts. I remember, you know, I would see Angie Martinez host free concerts in the summer. I remember going to see Debbie Fresh stations would host or local community groups would bring in a musician like Dino Puente. So it's not like things were perfect, but I mean, I grew up in a place that was so truly not one thing that even now, honestly, if I'm with any one group, it actually feels almost confusing to me because it was so evenly divided where I was. Our New Yorkness was the, was the unifying factor. You know, as I grew up, I felt more of a, a Brooklyn girl, a New York girl than I did probably anything in particular than I felt Latino. And so that pride of hip hop really existed there as well. Like people who would talk about their neighborhood and call out where they were from, like you would cheer with them, you would celebrate with them. My next song is Justify My Thug by Jay Z from the Black Album. This is another song I pick for a number of reasons. One of them is of all of the songs from the Black Album, I almost never hear this song shouted out. And much like a guy said to me once when I was in a store in Austin called Nice Kicks, he was like, he pointed at my my kicks and he was like, yo, that was a great pair of Adidas that I felt people slept on. That's how I feel about the song Justify My Thug. It's a great song that people sleep on. That whole album is great. And obviously that album was like a turning point in Jay-Z's career, not just because he was retiring, even though we knew he wouldn't retire, but you know, he put out the documentary fades to black and I think people really saw him talking and thinking about how he rhymes and I think if people didn't understand his lyricism before that they started to understand his lyricism with that album so the black album itself great album love it so much but this song also is one of those songs that like got me through some stuff I can't say I've never knelt before God and acts with better cause sometimes it no avail but I never sat back feeling sorry for myself if you don't give me heaven I raise hell it's heaven so in Justify My Thug, in the first part of the song, there's a part where Jay-Z says, I'll tighten my belt before I beg for help. Foolish pride is what held me together through the year, which is why I never played myself. I just play the hand I'm dealt. I can't say I've never knelt before God and asked for better at times to no avail. But I never sat back feeling sorry for myself. If you don't give me heaven, I'll raise hell. 
till it's heaven, which I love. I love that whole thing, but I especially love if you don't give me heaven, I'll raise hell till it's heaven. Because I have always been the person who was like, no, something is wrong here and I'm going to say something about it, which is not necessarily a good way to make yourself popular with people, although it is a good way to figure out who your real friends are. <laughs> but I was always the person like if I was taking a writing class and my friends and I in the class didn't want to do the type of assignment that was being offered. I was like, why can't we do this other thing if we're paying for it? In my current job, even, I started there at a time that they were transitioning the show from one thing to another. And I was very blunt with them. I was like, this is what I think you need to do. I have never been afraid to be that voice. And so I found those lyrics really relatable, like a bit of a mantra for myself in the back of my head. The final part of the song I love, it's basically him throwing out to the world like, hey, when you've got a bunch of people growing up in shit situations like you have in places like where I grew up, what do you expect them to do? Like, do you think they're just going to be able to stay on the street and narrow? Do you think they're going to end up selling drugs to try to find a better life? Mr. President, there's drugs in our residence. Tell me what you want me to do. It's like, you know, it's very like ballsy. It's very like, yeah, what, what do you want? Come explain to us how you think we could be doing better. I'm either going to do this and do well for myself or I give up. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to do what I have to do. Mr. President, it's drugs in our residence. Tell me what you want me to do. Come break bread with us. Mr. Governor, I swear there's a cover up. Every other corner, there's a liquor store. Fuck us up. I think as I got older, the choices that my father made made a lot more sense to me. As a kid, I didn't know how to how to make sense of him being in prison all the time. As a kid, I didn't know what to do with that. But as I got older, and as I spent more time with that side of the family, and as I saw the like cycles of abuse that had existed, of drug abuse, of physical abuse that existed, I was like, yeah, these songs also started to make sense to me in the choices that my father had made and the choices that my mother had made and the choices of who they were as people, the reality of what they were dealing with and the fact that they were just doing the best that they could. At a certain point, you have to look around and say, like, fuck it, I'm going to do what I've got to do. And that's what I like about this song so much. You know, I think a lot of people don't necessarily pay attention to lyrics, but in this song, that one is one to me where I'm like, yeah, if you really hear what he's saying, like he's calling out unfair system. He's calling out this situation where people are not given good options to start and are then treated like monsters for not doing what society wants them to when really their choices are terrible choices to begin with. I think one of the reasons I've always related a lot to Jay-Z and to certain other artists that I love is I, as a person, have always felt compelled to explain myself and make sense of my existence. Because, like, where I grew up, I wasn't an anomaly in terms of my father's situation or whatever, but I wasn't a girly girl, and I wasn't a tomboy, and I wasn't... I was a bit of a brain, but I was also into really artsy stuff, but I loved hip-hop. I mean, I remember even in, like, 
fifth grade, like somebody said to me, oh, you like hip hop. And I was like, I've been in the same classes with you since we were like in first grade. Like, why is this surprising to you? Because people really feel a need to define people by a thing, right? And I think if you ask people around that time, like I would have been like, oh, she's like weird and she likes movies or something. I don't know. But I think ultimately, like if you don't quite fit in and if you need to really be who you are though to be happy, then at a certain point you have to start owning that. And to own that, sometimes you have to give people context. And I feel like that's a lot of what Jay-Z does with his songs. He was moving away from that era where it was just, I did all these things because I'm tough. And he was like, no, 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 I did these things because I had to do these things because I insisted to myself that I would reach this level. And so I need to explain that to you because I'm not trying to just like glorify it. And I think I've always related to that sense of being like, yeah, like this is the reality of my situation. The reality of me is that whatever your setup was, I couldn't necessarily play by those rules. I had to play by my own rules. And in playing by my own rules, these are the choices I had to make. Solomon swear, change my approach, stop shaving coat, stay away from hoes, put down the toes, cause I be doing the most. Oh no. But every time I felt that was that, they called me right back. They called me right back. Man, it call me right back. Oh no. I never felt more alive than ride shotgun inclines green five into the cosmos guns. The other very abnormal thing about my growing up that I'm very grateful for is that when I was a kid, my grandparents raised foster children. They raised many foster children. From the time I was five to about 16, they lived in a house in Brooklyn and kids would come in and out of that house. They would have eight kids at a time, usually boys. And so I learned a couple of very important lessons. One, which is a lesson I still try to impart to people to this day, never complain to people who have it worse off than you. My dad may have been in prison, but I was constantly looking at kids whose parents were so bad off that those parents couldn't even take care of those kids. So like my situation was immediately put into context for me as it's not good that your father's not here. It's not good that he flakes on you when he is out because he would, he would tell me he was coming and he wouldn't show up. But ultimately I was always around kids who had an even harder situation, which kept me from feeling the worst about it. Now, like any child of a person who dealt with drugs, I had those moments where I was like, why do you love drugs more than me? Why am I not good enough for you? Why are drugs so much more important and interesting to you than your child? I still dealt with all of that stuff. But in my day to day, I was constantly confronted with how it could have been worse. And that gave me a lot of context and clarity on my situation. Like a lot of kids in the 80s, I lived and died by The Cosby Show. And if you remember, Theo went to NYU. And I, I grew up in New York City. I spent a lot of time in the village growing up, and NYU was based in the village. If you've never been to New York City, for me, I think for many reasons, in part because I was a kid who would go to that area sometimes, in part because I loved The Cosby Show for a number of reasons, I became really obsessed with going to NYU. And I was like a film nerd, and Martin Scorsese had gone there, and I loved the movie Goodfellas. And also like Spike had gone there and it's like, yo, Spike Lee, Brooklyn, like Spike Lee went there. And so NYU became this image in my mind. I was really dedicated to going there. 
In fact, one time when I did live in L.A., I was walking into a 7-Eleven, and as I was pulling open the door, Malcolm Jamal Warner was pushing the door open from the inside, and he came out. And I actually do not get very flustered by celebrities, but I do if they are from my childhood. And so I saw him, and I just, like, froze up, like, oh, it's you. He looked at me, and I was like, hi, I'm sorry. It's just, ah, I think I went to NYU because Theo did. And he laughed really hard, and he, like... He was like, that's very sweet. And he like gave me a really big hug. And I was like, thank you. And I was happy because I hadn't called him Theo. I was like, because Theo did, I knew that I had not called him Theo. But NYU became this like idea of success to me. But I got in and I got in for acting. And I remember immediately meeting people from all over the country in a way that I never had. In New York, you can meet people from all over the world. And there is a lot of wealth in New York, and there always has been, and it's been especially strong the last 10 years. But you tend to interact with the people of your own class, as is true many places. And so in New York, I was exposed to all these people of different backgrounds, but not really different levels of wealth. And then all of a sudden at NYU, I was going to school with people whose like parents could fully pay out of pocket for them to go to a school that costs $40,000, $50,000 a year. When I got into NYU, my mother was making $17,000 a year working at the local junior high school as like an admin in the office. That's it. Like, that's what I put on my FAFSA. And I was just surrounded by these people who just, they thought that their circumstance was the norm when it was actually, they are a very small percentage of people. And so all of a sudden I was surrounded by that and that was really strange. I went to NYU, and then as soon as I finished NYU, I moved to Los Angeles. I had never lived outside of New York. I decided to myself, if you never leave the place you're from, it starts to make you weird. And I moved to LA with no plan. I had no driver's license. I didn't know how to drive. I didn't have much money. I got involved in like improv. I was looking for whatever job I could do. And being a New Yorker, was also a way that you carried yourself. And all of a sudden I was meeting these people that would say things to me like, you gotta drop that tough persona. And I was like, what persona? Like, this is just me. I've never been the most feminine girl. And especially in hip hop of that era, there was room for women like me, the type of hip hop I grew up on. And so to go to California and constantly feeling like I had to justify who I was as a person, like people acting like I was putting something on, when I actually felt like I was being very much myself, it really made me miss hip hop. And so I found myself really thirsty for it. When I left New York, my relationship to hip hop shifted a bit in that I needed it so desperately. What had been kind of a normal constant in my life became a real necessity because I had a very different existence in Los Angeles. Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, Caribbean, Latinos, like we are very normal in New York City. But if you go to the West Coast, you're talking a lot more Mexican. It's a very different background. It's a very different history. It's different food. It's different. In New York, I didn't really ever get asked things like, what are you, except by my fellow students at NYU. And then I moved to California and I was constantly being asked by Mexican people, what are you? Because 
I guess the best way I can describe myself is like, I'm like a really light-skinned Afro-Latina. Like I'm not dark-skinned, but my features are such that most people don't assume that I'm Latina. They actually usually start by asking me, which one of your parents is black? But all of a sudden, everybody on the West Coast, the white people I met, the black people I met, the Mexican people I met were all like, what are you? And this desire to stay really connected to where I was from and the pride of where I was from, I, I just needed the vitality of hip hop to like stay sane. This is a tough one. I am a big Kanye fan, and I always have been. I realized recently that I've actually, I think, seen him on every single one of his tours, and I wasn't trying to do that, I just did, so kudos to me. But my final pick is from my beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy is the song Runaway. And I always find, yeah, I always find something wrong. You've been putting up with my shit just way too long. So gifted at finding what I don't like the most So I think it's time for us to have a toast Let's have a toast for the douchebags Let's have a toast for the assholes Let's have a toast for the scumbags I really tried to pick songs that meant something to me because it's really hard to narrow it down if you love hip hop so much. It's hard to narrow down. I think anybody would have a really hard time picking. Um, but stories that really made me think of particular times. That song was one of two songs that I listened to a lot after my father died. I found out during the, my freshman year of college that my father was HIV positive. I hadn't seen him in person in many years. He was in and out of prison and he would flake on visiting me. And so I hadn't seen him in person for a long time. We would talk on the phone when he was in jail. He would send me letters. Uh, he would send me artwork as is very standard as well. He would paint me things, but he himself did not necessarily visit me when he was out. He would come out and he would relapse and he would do drugs, whatever, and I wouldn't see him. So I found out at the, at the end of my freshman year that my dad was HIV positive, and I wasn't supposed to necessarily know. My mother's boyfriend was a cop and told us. I think he accessed his file. And then I was young and I was really angry at him, in part because I remember talking to him on the phone and telling him I was going to NYU, and he thought it was like a community college, and that pissed me off because I had worked really hard to get into this school. Like kudos to everybody who goes to a community college. But I had, at a really young age, set my sights on, I'm gonna go to this big, important private institution and that will be a measure of success for me. And then he didn't know what it was. And that hurt me. And so I was angry. And so I didn't talk to him for a number more years. And then when I was in my mid-20s, my mother had a late-in-life surprise child whose name is Brooklyn. And I realized I didn't really know if my father was alive or dead. And 
I also realized that one of the reasons I had been afraid to find out was because I realized that like if he was dead and my understanding of him being a drug dealer who constantly got into fights and in violent situations, it felt like there was a good chance that he was, right? I was afraid that I would find out and for me it was like the equivalent of like picking the day he died. Because if he was dead and I called them and found out he was dead, it wouldn't really matter what day he had actually died, that would be the day that for me he died. And I never wanted to pick that moment. Like coaches wanna fly in your Freddy Lopers. You can't blame them, they never see Masashi sofas. Every bag, every blouse, every bracelet comes with a price tag, baby. Face it. You should leave if you can't accept the basics. Plenty holes in a ball of nigga matrix. Invisibly set, the Rolex is faceless. I'm just young, rich, and tasteless. P. Never was much of a romantic. My mother having my sister really like lit a fire under me and I decided to reach out. And so I reached out and it turned out that he was alive and I was able to get on the phone with him and he immediately started apologizing for like every mistake he had ever made, which was crazy. It just was not at all what I was expecting. And we got together for lunch and we had this like three hour lunch at my grandmother's place in the projects in Brooklyn where she still lived, the same place I used to visit her as a kid. And we had this like very honest conversation, this like type of honesty that like you just can't live in all the time. I think people have had this experience every now and again, you know, sometimes maybe it's like when you visit your family for the holidays and you end up staying up late with one person and you're like sitting at the table and you're just up late talking and you get to like really talking about like the real stuff. My father and I had that conversation in the middle of the day after not seeing each other in person for like 16 years. And he apologized for everything. He started understanding where I'd gone to school. He started understanding how hard my mother had had it. He had never understood that while she had gotten shot because of stuff he did, he never understood just how much she was never okay again after that. She could never dance again after that. She could never run again after that. She still deals with immense health issues every single day of her life because of that. He had never been around to see the aftermath of those things, so he didn't get it. And then that day, I felt like I made him understand. And it was a really special thing. He didn't tell me he was HIV positive that day and he didn't know that I knew. But about a year later, it was my birthday and his girlfriend at the time called me and she left me this message. She was like, hi. I had never met her, but she introduced herself over the phone. She was like, um, I know it's your birthday. Your father is down here visiting me in Florida. He's in the hospital, but he didn't want to miss your birthday, but he's not allowed to use the phone. So he asked me to call you and wish you a happy birthday. And he just wants you to know that he knows it's your birthday. He's really sorry he'll call you when he's out of the hospital. And when he does talk to you, there's something he wants to tell you. And so I realized like he's in the hospital probably because of pneumonia, which is true. And that the thing he wanted to tell me was that he, he had HIV. I called her back and I told her, hey, like, I think I know what my dad wants to tell me. And if it's what I think it is, you can tell him that I already know. And she got quiet and she was like, oh, you know. And I was like, yeah. She was like, okay. He doesn't realize you know. I was like, I know. And I guess she relayed to him that I did know, in fact, that he was sick, because we never really talked about it directly. But over the next couple years, he would go into hospital. He would go into the hospital more and more. He'd be out more, but he'd also go into the hospital more and more. But he also never, like, he didn't really, like, clean up his act, right? Like, he was still this guy who would go out partying. He was still this guy who would, like, get into fights. He was still this guy who 
one time we made plans and he flaked on me again. We were supposed to get together and he left me waiting for him just like I did when I was a little kid. Except now I was an adult. So I called him out on it. I told him, I was like, you did that to me when I was a kid and I'm not having it. You can't do that to me anymore. I'm not going to sit and wait for you. If we make plans, you be there because I'm not, I'm not here for that. I want to get to know you, but we're doing this on my terms because we already tried it your way and it didn't work. I had to reconcile the fact that like, here was this man that was my father who I could see myself in, who I could see where I got part of who I was, who I could see in my face, who I could see in my mannerisms, who I could see in my own short temper and who I loved very deeply, but who also was not necessarily the definition of a good person. I was with my father as he got sicker and he was in the hospital and he was on life support for a few days when we decided to take him off. And I was with my father and I was holding his hand as he took his final breaths. And I remember in the final few days of him being in the hospital, his, my stepmother, his wife at the time, common law, I don't think they even ever had like a real ceremony. You know, she told me about some of the dirtbag stuff that he had pulled on her. She was very honest with me about it, which I very much appreciated about her because everybody was trying to paint my father as a saint, which was offensive. As his child, it was offensive to me because I was like, oh, if he was so great, then why wasn't he there for me? That said, I can still find a place in my heart to love him. And so Runaway, after my father died, not just because of its somber tone, but in part because of lyrics like, let's have a toast for the douchebags. Like that resonated with me, that made sense to me. Like I was like, yeah, I love this person. I miss him, I wanna honor him but he was kind of a piece of shit at times. So let's have a toast for the douchebags. Let's acknowledge and give big ups to this person who actually isn't perfect, who can be garbage in so many ways, but who also is like the first person to show up and make sure that my grandmother gets to her doctor's appointment on time because that's the kind of person he was. He was still gonna flake on me as an adult. He was still gonna lie about certain things, but I loved him to the point where like after he died, my body reacted by like violently throwing up in the bathroom in the waiting room around the corner from his room in the hospital. That song just, it made all the sense in the world to me. Like what if we did give a cheers to these people? The idea of celebrating someone who has such failures felt very strong to me. It felt very special to me. I lost myself in that song. Man, I can understand how it might be kind of hard to love a girl like me. I don't blame you much for wanting to be free. I just wanted you to know. Swiss told me let the beat rock. Southside niggas that know me best I feel like me and Taylor might still have sex Why? I made that bitch famous God damn. I made that bitch famous For I don't know that there's ever been a celebrity that I've related to as much as I relate to Kanye West Kanye is to me like the worst parts of me Like if I didn't know how to keep myself in check Kanye makes all the sense to me in the world He was not wrong about Taylor Swift in that moment He just did not handle it correctly <laughs> 
for example, I am the kind of person who like, I have a hard time shutting up. I have a hard time with what I see as like minor injustices, right? I don't, I, there's not a lot I feel like I can do about the big ones, but when something is happening to me in front of me, I'm the person who wants to like jump in. A very good example of this would be, I once really got into it, into a fight with a guy on the train who was yelling at the mariachis who had gotten on the subway and were playing their song. And he was started like, this guy had been on his Bluetooth, like shouting a loud phone conversation the entire time. And then he was like berating the mariachis when they got on because he couldn't hear his phone call, which I thought was one very rude. And he kept saying things to them like, go get a real job. And what really I think got me was I was sitting across from him and I watched him size them up before he said anything. I watched him kind of go through the process of deciding that he was better than these guys before he said anything to them. And so me, being me, started yelling at him. I was like, why are you giving them a hard time? Like, nobody wanted to hear your Bluetooth conversation, but we all had to go for that. Like, leave them alone. They're just, he was like, they should get a real job. And I was like, this was like 2008, 2009. I was like, what real job? There are no real jobs. And then he started like shouting at me like, oh, you're a criminal. You belong in prison. I was like, please, I bet I went to a better college than you did. But this is me in a nutshell. So for me, when Kanye interrupted Taylor Swift, I was like, yo, Kanye's mom just died not long ago. Like, I get this. I, after my father had got drunk and said crazy stuff to many people, but it is not my normal to be at an award show. It is not like my usual Thursday to be in an award show. He's doing the same stuff I would do, except he is living a very public life. And so he will be vilified for this instead of it becoming just a thing that your friends laugh at you about the next day where like mine did. I just wanted you to know. I've talked a lot about my dad, but I grew up with this mom, this really amazing, loving mom who supported everything I wanted to do. If she didn't understand stuff I was into, but if I was into it, she was there. That woman watched so many Stanley Kubrick movies that she was like, I don't know what I'm watching, but you love this and I will watch it. Like she sat through so many things that she hated because I was into it. And I remember when Kanye's song, Hey Mama, came out, I like just burned that single song in a CD and sent it to my mother. To me, I was like, this guy gets what my experience has been like in terms of my relationship to my mother. I made the same promises to my mom that he had talked about in those. I'd catch my mom crying about not being able to pay the bills or another random idiot that she dated treating her terribly. And I'd be like, Mom, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make it. I'm going to buy you a house. I'm going to take care of you someday. Like, I'm going to be able to give you everything that nobody's ever been able to give you. And I really related to that. So I remember hearing on the news that Kanye's mom died and I broke down in tears as if my own mother had died because I was like, if I use his art to explain to my mother how I feel about her, then I get how he feels about his mother. And if he lost her today, I wouldn't even be able to handle if I lost mine. I would lose my mind. After my dad died, I kept telling people like, this is hard, but I'll be okay because it's not my mom. I very much related to that about Kanye, and I see myself in that. So when he started really acting the fool after, I was like, nope, I would be inconsolable. I would be crazy. I would be all over the place if I lost that champion in my life. 
I really felt for that, and I still do. I still do feel for that. I want to tell the whole world about a friend of mine. This little light of mine, I'm finna let it shine. I'm finna take y'all back to them better times. I'm finna talk about my mama if y'all don't mind. I was three years old when you and I moved to the shy late December. I was doing a lot of work for people. I was running events. I had started doing comedy and ended up more like working at the venues than actually getting to perform. I remember the artistic director of one place once told me, he was like, I don't know, I just, I just don't think you're funny. I just don't see it. And meanwhile, he was casting and using all the people that were my closest friends who I was performing with a lot. And, and then they would say to me things like, why is he not including you in this? And I was like, he just doesn't think I'm funny. So I was frustrated. And I started to realize that I had kind of like two kinds of friends, right? I had like the comedy theater film weirdos that I had been having my whole life. And all of my other friends who were not that, most of them were journalists, including like my writing partner. I had a writing partner for a while in LA. She had just quit being a journalist. She had been working in Paris for four years for what was then known as the International Herald Tribune, but basically the international version of the New York Times. She had a sweet gig. She worked for them in Paris for four years. She gave it up and decided she wanted to do comedy. And we wrote together. And I was performing with the storytelling group The Moth often. And I was working for them part-time, producing some of their live events. I was getting to tell stories all over the place. I was listening to shows like This American Life and realizing like, oh, like not only can I do this, I could do it in a way that is talking because I don't really... I like to write, but it's really just to get my ideas out. Anything I, I write is really meant to be said. It is meant to be delivered orally. And so I really started falling in love with that. And then I had this other good friend who I'd gone to college with who she and I were like, we had this like funny thing where we realized like, first of all, we were two of the only like Latinas in our program. We look absolutely nothing alike. And people would call us by each other's name because that's what happens when you don't know any Latinos. Like you're just like, those are the Latinos and they are interchangeable, even though we are not interchangeable. But we had a funny thing where we realized that our lives often ran in parallel with her being like just two years ahead of me. And so she had gone to this journalism grad program and then I became really interested in it. I remember asking her about it. I was like, well, you know how we've always done things, the same stuff a couple years apart. Maybe I should go to that journalism school. It was all good just a week ago. They just feel they self And that watch the phone drop They just kill they self What niggas gonna do, ho? Just a new crap on a new stove I'm in two, though True that They just telling me You back Like a nigga ever left about this bitch, huh? And if life a bitch basically suck my dick, huh? I applied in 2011 And this was after a couple years of being like laid off And not really having much money and just rough years. My dad had died and at the end of 2008, and then I kept getting laid off, and then I was sick, and then I didn't know I was sick, and the whole thing was crazy. And so in 2011, I was finally healthy, and I'm applying to this program, and I was like, I'm gonna try to go to this journalism school, and if I get in and I can afford it, great, I'll go, and then I'll try to set myself off on a new path. And if I can't, then I'll just double down on some of the stuff I'm doing and try to work on other creative outlets. And I got into the program, and I not only got in, but I was sent a notification that I was one of the few applicants who was like unanimously approved by the application committee. And then I was offered a scholarship. And so it went from being like, maybe I'll do this thing to, to feeling not just like I was wanted there, but that I was enthusiastically wanted by them on that side. And I remember like, I really was like, had quite the soundtrack going for myself, you know, listening to a lot of hip hop and really like psyching myself up. And I was like, I'm gonna go in there 
and it's a 16 month program. And for 16 months, every single day, I need to be the exact best version of myself. I need to be the very, very, very best version of myself. And I will be exhausted and I will be drained and I will be beat up. And it is maybe not something that you can do every single day of your life, but I can do it for 16 months. For 16 months, I'm going to go in there and every single goddamn day, I'm going to crush it and I'm gonna be the best student that I can be. And I went in there so hungry and I sat like in the front of every class and I was outspoken in every class. And when people didn't give me what I wanted, I raised hell until it was heaven. Like I was like, you will give me every class I want because I only have this much time here. You will help me get the internship I want because I came here and I am good at this. And I was really aggressive about it. And I mean, there were definitely some fellow students that like snickered, but most of my teachers were like on board. Like they were like, yes, the more faith you have in you, the more faith we have in you. And they like backed me up. And I ended up interning at Radiolab which is this really amazing public radio show that I really wanted to be at. And I went at it so hard. People would go out and socialize. I was like, nope, I gotta go to work. I worked two jobs while I was there. I never missed a deadline. Failure was not an option. Only the best of me was an option. I was like, I'm gonna go in there and I'm gonna crush it and I'm gonna just tear it apart. That's exactly what I did. I started interning at Latino USA in my final semester. The show was a very different show then, it was a half hour show. And I was interning there two days a week, but to finish up school, I was gonna need another day of the week to report and like work on my school projects. So I asked them if I could down, go down to one day a week and they were very kind about it as well. They were very like, hey, we get it, life happens, your degree is more important, go do you. And then I graduated and I didn't have an actual job lined up and I realized that they didn't really have any interns lined up for the spring. And I said, you guys were so kind to me about being understanding of my schedule. How about I keep coming in and offering you guys some help while you sort out more interns because I want to keep my momentum up anyway. And they were like, okay, cool. And that very quickly became, well, we don't want you to work for free. So here's some part-time work and part-time work became full-time work. And they offered me a job while we were, they were going through this process of taking the half hour show to an hour. And I remember being like, I don't want to be at another place that doesn't have faith in me. And that doesn't listen to me. And so when they were talking about like, what would you like to see the show? I was very blunt with them. I was like, I don't know what the show is half the time. I don't get why you put some of these stories together. I like the ideas behind stuff, but I don't think that the execution is good. I was just blunt. My idea behind it was like, I'm going to tell you exactly who I am. And then if you like it and you go with it, then we're golden. But if you don't like it, then we know that too. And we're not going to waste each other's time. And so I became a full-time producer there and a full-time producer became the line producer. And uh, when the previous senior producer stepped down, I became the senior producer. So I went from being the intern to running the show. And I've been a big part of changing the sound of that show. And I'm very, very proud of it. It's been really lovely, but it's something I had to fight for in a way, in so many ways, you know? And so I appreciate the bravado of Jay-Z and of Kanye because I had to do that myself to actually get somewhere. When I did that, it paid off. When I stopped doing what I thought people wanted or needed and did what I really wanted and needed, but in service of what I thought was the larger good goal for everyone, 
that's when really things started happening for me. And now I get to be myself basically for a living. When I was doing my two episodes on Latinos and hip hop, I thought a lot about using the words hip hop and rap interchangeably, right? And to me, I think in my head, I define it like rap is the musical genre. Hip hop is a mindset and a lifestyle. Having to celebrate yourself when nobody else will, having pride in things that people will look down at when you have good reason to have pride in them, having an attitude that you can back up with your character, that to me is all hip hop. Hip hop is love and and dance and art and fun and striving and hope. It is all of those things, but ultimately, to me, it is in some sense like an attitude and a way of life. And then there is a reason that when I am really sad, I will realize like I haven't listened to much hip hop in a while. I can be in a really bad place and I listen to like a really good hip hop playlist and I feel centered again. It does something for me that most other things don't do. And I have tried meditation, I have tried yoga, I have tried all of those things. And very few things will just get me all centered and peaceful and calm and all is right with the world the way that just a good long walk or a good long train ride and the right hip hop songs will make me all right with the world. There's something beyond about it. It transcends that. It speaks for a certain pocket of people. And I love being one of those people. And from me, myself, and I.